Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a chaplain, a professor, a writer, a speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, ethics, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, and other relevant matters. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to pick up on the series we started last week. Last week, we just discussed the doctrine of human sinfulness and concluded that while we are capable of doing good, nothing that we do is meritorious. In other words, it's not viewed as righteousness before God. So even our good deeds are going to be polluted by sin, and so we need God's grace to save us. But today we're asking the question, how does God save us? That's the subject of this series, actually. And today we're going to actually discuss a narrower topic, which is, is God choosy? If we need grace to be saved, how is it possible if we're as sinful as we are? Who initiates salvation? How does that work? And so, Aaron, maybe you can get us started off helping us to more fully introduce the topic for today and discussing why this issue is so sensitive in the Christian church. So these topics are going to build one off of uh, the other. And so I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2 by way of a summary and just remind our listeners that people are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, and corpses do not revive themselves. Corpses don't heal themselves. It's really important. Mark chapter 7 tells us that human beings have evil hearts. Romans chapter 6 reminds us that we are literally enslaved to sin. We need someone beyond us to free us. And Romans 3, if we backtrack in the book of Romans, tells us we do not seek after God. So it is true, this is really important, that human beings are capable of rational assent or contemplation in the mind of divine truths. But what what we want to argue is that we are not capable of spiritual seeking or of exercising saving faith. We are capable of hearing the gospel, comprehending the words, connecting certain dots, but because we need the regenerating work of God in our lives, we're not capable of actually exercising in and of ourselves, by our own wills, by our own efforts, saving faith. Much like we would all agree that a person could join the Christian religion, so to speak, A person could attend church as a religious effort, or they could even step into a baptistry and get wet without the work of God in their lives. Mm -hmm. It's not required that God would pick you up and drop you into a baptistry. You could just walk up and, and walk in. But that person is not saved just because they are participating in the external manifestations of the Christian religion. Saving faith requires a work of God that is beyond the capacity of every single sinning human being through all of time. And so the Bible teaches us that God works behind the scenes and even before the creation of the world, that God sets his favor on some purely based upon his sovereign choice and apart from their merit or even their interest in the things of God. And this happens to happen this, this has to happen that way, or the reality is, is that not a single solitary person throughout human history would ever be saved. So in the Bible, this is called, this is biblical language, I'm not making this up. In the Bible, this is called the doctrine of election. And in fact, every Christian has a doctrine of election. Sometimes I I chuckle a little bit when I hear Christians say, well, do you believe in, in election or do you not believe in election, almost as if some believe in it and some don't. This is not true. Everyone actually believes in election if they have a doctrine of sin uh, or if they believe in the narratives of Scripture. For example, that God chose Abraham and his descendants to the exclusion of many Canaanite nations or Moabite nations. So everyone has a doctrine of election individually or collectively. And this is what we want to discuss further. The difference is is the electing work of God conditioned upon the interest or efforts or reception of the truth by the sinner, or is it unconditional upon the response of humanity, and in fact, conditional only upon 
the grace and mercy of God. And that's what we want to discuss uh, further. Okay. So that'll be an interesting discussion because obviously we all have to wrestle with this issue if we're going to read scripture. So where in scripture does it talk about this election we're talking about? So several places in scripture, just to get us going, we'll start in, in the gospels. A lot of people think this is Pauline theology, exclusively Pauline theology, but it's it's in the gospels. For instance, in Matthew 24, which is a fascinating chapter in and of itself for eschatological reasons, speaking of tribulation and trials, the Bible says, and if those days had not been cut short, and we can debate about what those days are referring to, but that's not our subject, goes on to say, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So there we have a reference to the elect in gospel literature. Romans chapter 3, uh, Romans chapter 8, rather, verse 33 says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So again, clearly there's a reference to the elect, those that have been elected through the process of election uh, in the word of God. Romans 9, 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, neither good or bad, we'll come back to this, this is about Jacob and Esau, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So again, yet another reference to election. This is why we're arguing this is not a made-up doctrine. This is not our word being applied to something we vaguely see in the word of God. This is a biblical doctrine. Everyone has to have a doctrine of election if they're going to honor the word of God. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Second Peter chapter one, verse uh, 10. So we have gospel literature, we have the corpus of Pauline literature speaking of the elect or election, and we have the Petrine epistles. Therefore, brothers, we all the more, uh, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice those qualities, you will never fall. So again, we have the doctrine of election spread across the pages of the New, New Testament. So the real question is not whether or not the doctrine of election is true. The doctrine of election is unequivocally true. Mm -hmm. It's clearly true. It's taught in the word of God. It's The question is whether it is, and I'll repeat myself, conditional upon our, you could use the word willingness, Mm -hmm. upon our seeking, upon our desire, or upon our will, if it's conditional upon those things, or if it's unconditional, meaning based upon the willingness, the seeking, the desire, or the will of God. So you either have God's will, God's seeking, God's desire, God's willingness to elect us, or you have, the alternative would be, Human be a human being's will, desire, willingness, or seeking that positions them for election. Simply put, we're going to argue that we do not make the first move. So under the conditional uh, view, the, the suggestion would be made that we make the first move, and therefore we qualify ourselves for the electing work of God. So we decide, we seek. We, we respond to the, in, the uh, invitation, or we believe, and based upon that, God elects us. I don't think that squares with Scripture. Mm -hmm. It's better to see God as the one who makes the first move. It's his desire. It's his will. It's his seeking. It's his willingness. Based upon his eternal decrees before the creation of the world, in fact, to be more accurate, through which we are elected unto salvation. So I'll argue for that position Someone has to initiate election. Election, everybody believes it. The question is who uh, initiates election? Does man initiate election? If you believe that, then election is conditional. Or does God initiate uh, our, our conviction and our conversion? And if so, then you believe that it is unconditional. So obviously, the way that you answer this isn't just interesting theologically. It affects your view of how God works, yep. of who God is. It affects your view of human beings, uh, a man's or woman's capacity apart from the work of God. 
And it also has implications for how we worship, how we evangelize, how we speak of the gospel. So there are practical implications that flow out of this, but it's important before we get to implications to talk about, to clarify our, our understanding of biblical doctrine in this regard. Yeah, for sure. Now there's, I know there's, I've had this conversation with many people, you've had it. There's a lot of people very sensitive around this topic. And sometimes in church life, it seems more strategic to avoid it just to oh, for keep sure. the peace, right? So um, why is it so disputed, sensitive? Maybe highlight that and and uh, draw that out. So depending on your audience, everything in the word of God is sensitive or disputable. You can say there is a God. And if you're in a collection of atheists, you're going to get some pushback. But then there are certain doctrines that are hyped up in the life of the church that tend to be cause people a bit more angst. And I think this this is one of them. And there's there's many reasons for that. Of, of course, my my goal is not to thin out our church or or thin out our our listenership. That's not my intention. I want to be gracious. Whenever you talk about the doctrines of grace as we call them, if if you're not gracious, that's kind of the ultimate irony. Yeah. <laughs> because if if God is gracious, which is upon which this doctrine is predicated, then we want to we want to manifest God's grace to others in in this conversation. In fact, uh, this isn't a hobby horse. It's an important doctrine. I think it's the first time we've unpacked this in almost three years of podcasting. But people do ask about it, and people are interested in figuring this out. And because we often say in our church that creatures don't apologize to other creatures for what the Creator has said, and we're not you know, we're unapologetic in our preaching and teaching. If it's in the word of God, at some point you need to have a conversation about it. So it's not intending to thin out the numbers, but of course it could result in that. And if that's the case, then there's not much we can do about it. We also are not pagans. We don't manufacture our own doctrines from out of thin air. Mm -hmm. We're not driven. We should not be driven by uh, forming our doctrines out of human experiences or human emotions. That would not be a Christian approach. We need to base our views on the word of God, even if we don't like them initially, mm -hmm. even if they bother us, even if they stretch us, even if they rattle our emotional cages a little bit. We need, as Christians, especially in a culture that is so anti-truth, we need to make sure that we've harnessed our views on matters such as this to the word of God. It's not to say that we can't have opinions on non-biblical issues. Mm -hmm. you know, what's the best truck to drive? What's right. uh, Where's the best place to buy coffee? We can have opinions on other things, but when, I talk, when we're talking about biblical doctrine, the buck stops with the Bible. Yeah. So a, a few specific things come to mind that I think makes this a, an extra sensitive subject. One is that it challenges many of us in terms of our preconceived views of who God is, mm -hmm. because we have a, a view of God that I would go as far as to say is partially accurate, but is not always particularly accurate. And when I when I say that, I'm referring to our view of what, what it means for God to be fair or God to be loving. We often, those are people are often fuzzy-minded when it comes to what that actually means. When we think of God electing, it, it might make people angry. In fact, I think sometimes it does make people angry. Strangely, I've noticed this interesting observation that when you talk about God, God's sovereignty and salvation, I've noticed sometimes it makes people more angry than they are angry at human sinfulness around them or yep. in them. We tend to be okay on a certain level with our own sin or evil, but when there's any implica implication or suggestion that God just isn't, you know, a big throbbing heart who is fairsy squaresy and even Stephen with everyone, it, it tends to bother people. It it appears when you talk about unconditional election, it appears on the surface almost to be an attack on God mm -hmm. or an accusation that God is somehow. Uh, evil, or or that our ministry is hopeless. There's no reason to do ministry because God just got it all figured out in His eternal decrees. And we'll, we'll address some of those things. But I want to just raise one of the objections out of the gates. Mm -hmm. A second objection relates to social stigma. We're we're creatures of of um, social contexts, and 
whether we like it or not, much of our doctrine is also shaped by what's cool, what's in, what's hip, what is what is being tweeted the most, what's being talked about the most. We're subject we have to be careful that our doctrines aren't viewed or shaped based upon peer pressure or what's culturally apropos at the moment, but upon the word of God. And there is a stigma attached to the doctrine of uh, unconditional election. I've heard many people say, even about our church, what you, you sh- to others, what you shouldn't go to that church because they believe in election. Mm. As if instead of having a conversation about what that means, it's like well, that. Wouldn't we all agree that's bad? So don't go there. They believe in in mm. election. Or um, I've heard people say things like, when you say, "Well, what what do you teach in the area of election?" Well, we just we just teach Jesus. Yep. Which is a very interesting thing for someone to say because I just read from Matthew 24 from the words of Jesus. Yes. And he he uses the word election or elect mm-hmm. there. It's better for us to um, discuss the issues, mm-hmm. to wrestle these issues to the ground instead of avoiding them and assuming or propagating, promulgating is a better word, the assumption that the doctrine of election as we understand it, is somehow a bad thing. It's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So everyone has a doctrine of election, I believe, and everyone should be able to talk about and defend their uh, doctrine of election. And then the third big one, which I've already alluded to, is it, it does raise uh, questions of, quote-unquote, fairness. From the time we're little, we're taught, you know, be fair, be fair, be fair. And when we talk about unconditional election, some would say, well, doesn't, doesn't everyone get a fair shake? Like I thought that's kind of how the gospel works. Everyone gets a fair shake. It's a fascinating question for people to ask because they know that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. So for example, if if you if you try to argue that God is fair, and and we'll talk about fairness because it is in the Bible, but if we talk about God being fair, meaning that everyone gets an absolutely equal shot at salvation, you you just you just painted yourself into a corner. Because if you've, if you've read the word of God, you know right well, there's something called Canaanite genocides. Mm-hmm. When babies, moms, dads, everyone get sacked by the people of God under the old covenant. You know about the slaughter of the Moabites. You know about the slaughter of the Ammonites. That's the same Bible that... Yep. that uh, Contains the Book of Romans. It contains Ephesians. So, what do you, have you overlooked the Canaanite genocides? If your view of fairness means everyone gets an even Stephen shot at life, what about multiple instances based upon legal fairness where God overlooks the old, um, the ancient law of primogeniture, where the the, the firstborn son gets a yep. lion's share of the estate? That's how it worked for generations in multiple Semitic cultures, and time and time again, God breaks that law and he picks the younger over the older. He picks um, J- Jacob over Esau. He picks Joseph over his older brothers. Yep. It's repeated almost generationally where the, the younger receives unmerited, undeserved favor from God as God flips the, the laws of primogeniture on their head. Or even modern people, if you look at the world around us, we live in a global context if God is sovereign over all of things and your doctrine of fairness says that everyone has to get an even shot at everything, then what do you do with the fact that many people are born into non-Christian homes and aren't taken to church and don't hear the gospel like perhaps you have from the earliest ages? What do you do? How do you answer questions of economic uh, inequality around the world? How do you respond to someone whose who's 15-year-old just died and then their neighbor's, you know, kid makes it to the age of 90. So we, we have to, we do have to have a question of fairness and we have to understand what God is speaking about when he says he's not partial. But what that definitely doesn't mean is that everyone gets an even shot at everything. That violates our observations of, mm-hmm. of the social order. It violates God's word in the New Testament, and it violates many narrative accounts in the Old Testament. So we don't really believe in fairness uh, in that respect. 
so let's deal with one of the main fairness passages, and that is Romans chapter two, verse verse eleven. It says there, for God shows no partiality, which in an, another way of putting it positively is that God is fair. But what if you read the context there, what God is saying is it means that he shows no partiality in judging sin. So he's, he's fair in his judgment of sin, meaning that the standard that he sets for everyone is perfection. The basis upon which God will adjudicate human sinfulness is, is perfection. That's the standard. That's God is fair and that he's not going to provide, he's not going to say, well, you got to measure up to these thousand commandments, but you only need to measure up to 10, yep. or you need to measure up to eight, and you have to measure up to 8,000. God is, his fairness, his partiality, his impartiality is demonstrated in his judgment upon sin. The standard upon which every man, woman, boy, or girl will be judged is the perfection of God. And in that sense, God is fair. Now, the next chapter says all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. So that means all people are under the judgment of God and all people are deservingly under the judgment of God. So in terms of the application of God's fairness, the fair thing for God to do is to consign every human being to damnation. That's the mm -hmm. fair thing to do. So if we, want, if we want to have a proper understanding of fairness or God's impartiality, it has to be connected to his His perfect decrees, his perfect plan, his perfect laws, not to, well, why does sinner A uh, receive more grace from God than sinner B? It, that implies some subtle notion that you are owed an opportunity, that you are owed an equal chance, that you are somehow owed grace or owed mercy. And it might rattle your cage if you've never heard of this before, but you are not owed anything. What you are owed based upon the perfection of Christ is eternal damnation mm -hmm. because you are in Adam and because you have sinned. That's, I think, crystal clear in the word of God. And you just, it's difficult to skirt yep. that yep. that reality. Yeah. Do you think there's also a emotional argument? I think of this as a parent. When I wrestle with the doctrine of election, the natural thing is to think about my own children. And I guess you, maybe this is... Um, it's not fair to think differently about your own children than other people, but it's kind of natural. So if I wrestle with the thought, well, could one of my child children not be elect? Do you think that plays into it? Well, we needn't concern ourselves with that, first of all, um, because God speaks of election, but he doesn't tell us who, when, where, what, how. Yep. He, he just tells us that that he He elects. And again, everyone has a doctrine of election, so we, we evangelize equally, et cetera. It's interesting, though, parents who would say, well, every other parent's child is equally made in the Imago Dei, they're equally human, they're equally valuable, doesn't spend a lick of their time necessarily raising or providing for another person's child. We, we tend to focus on our own offspring, mm -hmm. um, biological or, or adopted. Um, but there's a, there's a, there is a big difference between uh, a, a fallen couple, a couple that are fallen in sin, raising fallen children and seeking to exercise a degree of equality over those children, a degree of benevolence over those children, and the absolutely perfect, holy God of the universe who has created a lot of children, all of whom have blatantly and willfully rebelled against mm -hmm. him, somehow having his rebellious children demand that they each have, that they each get a pardon. Um, it's so the anal the analogy between human parent and child is not super helpful in understanding the chasm, the infinite chasm because that sin creates between you and I and our holy, benevolent heavenly Father, who who whose justice demands because he's impartial that we be consigned to uh, damnation, but who in his grace seeks to save some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Now, obviously, people are going to want even more biblical support. They're going to want to understand where this is coming from in the text. And you've alluded, or well, you've mentioned several passages, but can you get into a few more Bible passages, I think, that support the doctrine of unconditional election and where else people can turn to in Scripture for that? Well, I think it's an error to limit this discussion to the New Testament. It's It's interesting that 
the the Old Testament is almost more blunt, almost more obvious about this, in that we have the patriarchal period, the Toledos of, you know, well, we have the pre-flood, uh, you know, Adam, uh, Cain, Abel, Seth, Lamech, those early generations, the flood, we have then the patriarchal period. And during that patriarchal period, this is where this doctrine really comes comes out, and that we have this individual by the name of Abram, who's he, living in Mesopotamia, who God sets his sights on. And now Abraham does believe and respond by faith, which some would argue, well, clearly God's choice of Abraham is predicated upon his belief. We'll come back to that. And here's what here's how we need to come back to that. That's true. So if you just look at the Abraham account, you might think, hmm, is that really a strong case for unconditional election because he did exercise faith? But what about the fact that based upon Abraham's faith, Isaac automatically gets God's favor, Jacob automatically gets God's favor, Jacob's 12 sons automatically get God's favor, the nation of Israel get God's favor, to the exclusion, by the way, of the Egyptians, for example. Under the judges, they get God's favor, to the exclusion of the Canaanites and everyone else that's living in other parts of the world at the time, many of which are not mentioned in the Bible. Then we have the, the period of the kings, and whether they are good kings or bad kings, whether they are living in obedience or disobedience, God has demonst- God is demonstrating corporate favor mm-hmm. to the nation Time, for, for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The whole of the Old Testament is a grand meta-narrative of unconditional election. Yep. It's a grand meta-narrative where, and then we could get into you know specific uh, examples of that. In uh, Psalm 65, 4, the Bible says, blessed is the one you chose and bring near to dwell in your courts. This is in the Psalms. Blessed is the one you chose and bring near. And then within Israel, we have the choice of, Moses to lead his people. What did how did Moses qualify for that job? Because his resume wasn't exactly shiny. The house of Phineas is is uh receives the special favor of God. The Levites receive the special favor of God to serve as priests uh over the, the kingdom. David is selected over his brothers. Time and time again, now these aren't all specifically about saving, electing grace. But time and time again, we see examples even within the people of God where God sets his sights on someone who's undeserved mm-hmm. and makes him a choice servant. He then, Christ, of course, is manifested to us in the flesh in the Gospels. And if you read the Gospels carefully, Jesus is always the one initiating the disciple-making process. He goes to the beach yep. and he says to Simon, come follow me. He's the one who's initiating, he's initiating, he's initiating. He didn't meet Peter in the synagogue. He didn't meet James in the in the quote-unquote church. He sought them out. So in the grand narrative of Scripture, we see the favor and the election of God being demonstrated, and then we have blatant descriptions of it uh, in books like Romans. Romans uh, nine and ten is is a bit of a scary place for people to find themselves. If you have a human view of fairness that everyone deserves a, a yeah. fair shake, Romans nine and ten will literally rock your socks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is disturbing uh, if you don't have a proper view of sovereignty. I would dare you to read Romans nine and ten and say, yeah, that that makes me feel comfortable. I can still maintain a, a view of conditional election or conditional favor or earned favor or meritorious favor it it is disturbing even even as a seasoned christian when i read it it's like wow this this is how god works so l- let's go there so we'll start in uh the 10th chapter yep. and uh i want to read some excerpts from that chapter and uh exposit them a little bit explain them so i want to start with verse 11 and we'll go through to 13. Here, the Bible says in Romans 10, verse 11 through 13, for the scripture says, so this is authoritative writ, 
everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So there's an emphasis on the need for belief. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, meaning that there's opportunity for Jew and Greek to exercise that belief so they wouldn't be put to shame. That is based upon the nature of God. For the same God is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. So the implication there is we need to call upon the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's an emphasis there. We need to believe. We need to call. There's um, opportunity for Jews and Gentiles to do that. And that's a fact. And the doctrine of election doesn't, doesn't deny that. This is really important for people to understand. It doesn't deny that. There are not two separate paths to salvation. Everyone who calls will be saved. But that's not what the doctrine of election is addressing. The doctrine of election, so people are clear on this, is not addressing the, how human beings are perceiving or interacting with or quote-unquote receiving or believing in the gospel. It doesn't, it doesn't present us with a view that humans are somehow robots that are unaware of what God is doing, that God is not working with them in space and time. That's not what the doctrine of election is focused in on. It might seem like splitting hairs, but it's not. The doctrine of election is addressing the question, who initiates, who initiates our salvation? So am I, am I called to believe? Yes. Am I called to respond to the call? Yes. Can a Jew respond to the call? Yes. Can a Gentile respond to the call? Yes. But behind the scenes, who is initiating who is ensuring our salvation? See, this is what 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 people when you just grab a verse, a couple of verses like that. There's my proof text. Yep. It's, it's 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 us. It's it's my belief. It's my calling. It's my response. You don't read it in the the broader context. You miss the the broader message. And that same chapter goes on to say, for example, that in order for that to happen, a preacher is necessary. So we need to preach so that people can hear. But then this statement. Then this statement in verse 17 of the same chapter. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we need a preacher to yep. preach the message to us. But then listen to this. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is as bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But if Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So isn't that fascinating? The passage, the chapter contains clear uh, instructions. Believe call, uh, it's for Jew and Gentile, and then shifts to, I've made myself known. I've sent the preachers. I've delivered the prophecies. Surprise, surprise. People don't pay attention. Yep. They don't listen. They don't respond. So the inv God's emphasizing that he is invited. Mm -hmm. he, has, he has proclaimed. He has made himself known. This squares with Romans 1. Nobody's without ex uh Nobody can. Nobody is without excuse. They've all rece received truth, either in revelation or in this place through the direct work of God. But he says that all day long I've held up my hands mm -hmm. to a disobedient and contrary people. So we know the requirements through the preaching of God's word. They're, the messengers have gone out generation after generation throughout history, and yet people still don't seek. Isn't that interesting? People still don't seek. They're called to seek, but they don't seek. They're called to believe, but they don't believe. They're called to respond to the call, but they don't respond to the call. And so God clearly is the one who initiates. I'll read the 20th verse again. I have been found by those who did not seek me. What else can that mean other than God is the one who did the seeking? Yep. The second line, I have shown myself to those who did not Ask for me. What else can that mean other than the fact that God initiated it? You weren't asking. You weren't looking in God's direction. 
you didn't have the capacity. We talked last week about the nature of human sinfulness. It is deep and profound and wide and all pervasive in our lives. And you can listen to the best sermon. You can have umpteen dozen Bible translations at your disposal. And in each of our hearts, we will, we will refuse to respond to God's invitation unless God is working behind the scenes. Yeah. And I think if I've if I've read it correctly, like Romans 10 is clear, but Romans 9 is even more blunt, clear with it. So this, this is, uh, yeah, Rome, Romans 9 is hearkening back to the account of Jacob and Esau. Mm-hmm. And you look at Esau, he's this big hairy guy, he's, he's a woodsman, and he sells his uh, birthright. Again, primogenitures kicking in there. He had the right to the estates. He, he was out of the womb first. Yep. But uh, he sells it. You may think, well, there, there he goes. He, he sold it. Well, give the guy a break. He was hungry. He wanted a bowl of soup. And his brother snakily yeah. ripped him off, one could argue, his birthright. So it's not like he's out murdering, stealing, killing, you know, performing all these heinous sins. But if you, if you allow the word of God to explain what was happening between Jacob and Esau, it has nothing to do with the bowl of pottage, the bowl of stew. So it's not, it's not about mm-hmm. that. That's the human means by which Jacob secured the birthright, yep. but that's not actually what was happening behind the scenes. So let me read uh, from Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and following. And again, if you're, if you're driving, you might want to slow down because you're liable to swerve off the road. If you're uh, holding a, a hot cup of coffee right now in, in your car and you're listening, you might want to put it in the, the coffee cup holder. She'll be able to dump it on your lap. This is shocking scripture. Mm-hmm. It's shocking not because it is shocking. It's shocking based upon how many of us were raised to think about God. But this is in the word of God. So listen to this. It says, but it is beginning with verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So here we have, we're reminded that God chose Abraham and his physical descendants, but his intention was to graft in mm-hmm. by faith people from all streams and walks of life. And that maybe was hinted at in Uriah's conversion, Rahab's conversion, Bathsheba's inclusion in the covenant. But now it becomes, it comes to full light under the new covenant as God sends Jews to the nations to convert them. For this is the promise. So he points back to this, this episode. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, listen to this, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. In other words, they hadn't even had the conversation about the soup bowl yet. They hadn't violated the Ten Commandments yet. They hadn't stolen each other's toys yet. While they were still in the womb, okay, they had not done anything good or bad. The reason is this, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now that, it's shocking because, wait, 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 God is loving and he's hating someone? Right? Well, we need to extract our human hate, which is based upon arrogance and pride and failure to distinguish between creature and creator and all sorts of other nasty, sinful desires between God's perfect hatred towards sin and his sovereign choice to manifest love to his elect. You can't tear this out of your Bible. Mm -hmm. God, God's word says, this isn't our church doctrine. This is biblical doctrine. God's word says that God elected Jacob over Esau that he loved Jacob and hated Esau before they even entered the world. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a natural uh, response that people are going to have to this, and the Word of God anticipates it. So let me read further. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Sidebar, we've already raised that. This is a question. Well, doesn't that make God unjust? Mm -hmm. By no means, the Bible says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. This is what, why we must deny the doctrine of radical free will. Yep. Like even if, even if our wills were unrestrained by sin, we still wouldn't seek after God. The Bible is explicit, both in its narrative context and, its, and in its gospel literature and in its epistolary literature, that human beings never, ever, 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 ever salvifically pursue God. Mm -hmm. Again, can we join the Christian religion? Yes. Can we choose to enter a baptistry? Yes. Can we choose to sit and contemplate spiritual truths? Can we sit under sermons? That's not what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Salvifically, in terms of the ability to, to, to have the kind of faith that saved, we don't have the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. Adam's sin and our own sinfulness doubly damn us in that regard. And when you say, well, isn't God unjust or unjust? God says, I will have, here's the answer. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So right there, that previous view that people had about fairness where everyone gets an even chance, you have to toss that one in the big old dumpster. Yep. Fairness is about uh, God's judgment. He does not show partiality. He judges everyone based upon the perfection of Christ. It does not apply to having an even chance at anything or any everything in life, even then he gives an illustration from uh, Egypt. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, "For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth." So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and hardens whomever he wills. It's interesting if you read the Exodus account. I haven't read it for a while, but I believe I'm, it's accurate to say that when it talks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart through the various plagues, sometimes the language is Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes yeah. the language is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then it's Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So there's a both and there, but here's the thing. Humans never soften their own hearts. Mm -hmm. We Either God is hardening our hearts or we harden our own, but that doesn't imply we soften our hearts or when we're not hardening our hearts, we're naturally soft. We're not naturally soft. We're naturally hardened to the things of God. We are re rebels without a cause. And the fact of the matter is, is that if God did not unconditionally elect us, the grand total of people in heaven would be zero. Hmm. It would be zero. No one would ever do that. So God is the one who exercises um, sovereignty over these things. I love the fact that the Word of God anticipates our human objections to the things of God. And this is written 2,000 years ago, and it might as well have been written today, because people think the same way about this stuff that they did 2,000 years ago. And we have, a, we have an inflated view of ourselves and our value. So God, God's Word goes on in verses 19 through 20, uh, 23 to anticipate, to, to essentially put us in our place. I'll read that as well. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? So in other words, why would I then be judged if that's right. the, it's almost a fatalistic view. Mm -hmm. For who can resist his will? And here's the answer to that question. The proper answer is not to skirt around it. It's not to try to excuse God or, you know, put him, put him in better, uh, play with the words of the text to make him look better. It asks us the question. God puts the question back in our laps. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, showing, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for ve vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. Hmm. That is a humbling passage of the Bible. And it pushes us right into the corner. We are the pot. We are the clay. God chooses to make some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. That's his sovereign prerogative. So the answer, the answer to the question why is because God says so. Because God wills it as such. You don't need to like it to accept it. You don't need to even fully understand it to accept it. This is the word of God. And to deny to deny it is to actually do violence to the very character of God and to fail to uphold the differentiation between creator and creature. We are creature. We are clay. We are the lump. We're literally made from the dust of the ground. Mm-hmm. That's how Genesis describes the first man's uh, creation. So without question, everyone has a doctrine of election. And when it comes to the doctrine of election, yes, we're invited. Yes, we're called. Yes, we must believe. But then we discover we won't, and we don't. And we are incapable of doing it. So God must set his sights upon us. And that doesn't mitigate against preaching. We still preach. We're still called to preach. We're still called to woo. We're still called to uh, challenge. We're still called to preach law and preach grace because God uses all those things in his redemptive plan. But behind the scenes, God is working out all things for his own purposes. And it's interesting that he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured much much patience? Mm -hmm. How often do we think about the patience of God? Look at all he's had to pull up with. Look at all he's had to endure. Look at all the disgusting sins in each of our own lives he's had to endure so that in all of the mess and the muck and the mire and the darkness, he can demonstrate his mercy and his love and his grace. That's a beautiful thing. And so in that respect, the fact that our election is unconditional is a beautiful thing. It's not something to despise, but through the eyes of faith, we accept it. And we are actually strangely warmed by it. Um, So really, really, really important stuff for people to think about. Yeah, for sure. There's probably some objections that could be raised um, as we're considering this, just even as I'm listening, thinking, the voices in my head of conversations I've had. Some might declare God is unloving um, as portrayed by this doctrine of election. What would you say to that? I think Romans 9 has in part, maybe in whole, already answered that. But um, if God is merciful and gracious, that makes him loving. Hmm. And in election, he is merciful and gracious. He is actively merciful and gracious, and that makes him loving. Under the view of conditional election, he is passively gracious and merciful. But under a view of unconditional election, he is actively gracious and merciful. So this doctrine actually highlights his love, if you look at it from another another angle, because we all deserve eternal separation. Now, one could also ask, if the other view is true, if God is all-powerful, but his electing grace is conditional upon the efforts, the will, the desires of the sinner. Well, if he's all-powerful, why wouldn't he force the reprobate, the sinner, to accept, to believe? Because otherwise, he would know that those people would be going to hell. Wouldn't that make him unloving if he had the power to save, Mm -hmm. but passively stood on the sidelines and did nothing to cause it? So many would respond, well, but those that that end up in hell chose to obey, well, or disobey. Well, yes and no. They chose in space and time, but they're also damned in Adam. Mm-hmm. And the statistics on human sinfulness are rather impressive to prove that point. 100% of people sin. So it doesn't really solve the problem by saying, well, God is all-powerful, but he's passive in his mercy and grace. He's waiting for you to take the first step. Then he's not really loving because he's permitting you to do something stupid mm-hmm. when he has the capacity to stop it. And so whether you conditionalize election or unconditionalize it, if your view of divine love implies that there's some measure of human innocence in you that you're still trying to retain, mm-hmm. you're cooked. Yeah. Your doctrine is cooked. 
your theology of God is cooked. Your theology of sin is cooked. Your theology of man is cooked. So you, mm-hmm. even even if you wanted to do your doctrinal inquiry from a logical perspective, uh, the doctrine of unconditional election, which, sound, which sounds a lot like unconditional love, mm-hmm. guards the love of God more than the view that his love is conditional upon your response. That actually reduces God's love. Yeah, that's fair. And then, of course, we have multiple invitations in the Bible. Um, I've seen people, well, the Bible invites them. I've already addressed this, but I'll address it again. Uh, Invitations are a lot like laws. So how does a person become aware of their sin? By the preaching of the law. God, when God's holy standards are revealed, we're awakened to sin, and now we are conscious of our condemnation, and now we are responsible in space and time to respond. Well, invitations are a lot like law. Mm-hmm. They're given. The preachers go out. They, the call is made. The, the world, through general revelation, through the prophets of old, through the apostles, through the written canon of Scripture— Multiple invitations are made. These all serve to expose our guilt and to speak to, it also speaks a bit to the anthropogenic side, the, the, mm-hmm. the man's side in that uh, you know, the preacher does preach and he should preach. The ear does hear and it should and must hear. The call is issued and the call must be issued, but God's working to overcome our natural our, our natural propensity. See, our, our, the conclusion that every man, woman, boy, and girl will always make to the proclamation of the gospel, to the invitation to repent and believe, is no thanks, I'll do it my way. Mm-hmm. Every Everyone. Nobody seeks after God. No one is righteous. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. You preach. The word goes out. The call is made. The invitation is issued. Every single human being will always fail to RSVP. They will not respond unless God is working behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So the call does go out, but it, it's it's what. So if I get up in front of my congregation and I say, "Adultery is a sin, stealing is a sin, covetousness is a sin," am I saying to them, "Hey, if you can get your act right in in these areas, you're going to get to heaven"? No, mm-hmm. I'm awakening them to their sin. Yep. So yep. if they're Christians, they can respond. But I'm even awakening awakening unbelievers to their sin. Not only to guard culture, which is a great subject of conversation, yep. but to help them to see they're a sinner so that I can then preach grace and mercy and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really no different when God says, you're invited, you're called, you know, and, I, and we're talking about a general call mm-hmm. here, uh, to repent. You need to believe. You need to trust. Nobody gets the Father but through me. This actually, these words serve to awaken us to our sin because by our, in and of ourselves, we will not respond to the mm-hmm. call. We will never RSVP in the positive. Yeah, it re- reveals our inability, right? That kind of ties into last week's discussion about total the, the complete sinfulness, right. the way sinfulness has infiltrated us so badly. So it's almost like if you get the first message we put out last week right, this one falls into place almost necessarily. Yeah. So one question... Um, what, okay, what, this is the big question. What do we do with this? What should we not do with this? Because I know some people misuse the doctrine. So theology always leads to praxeology. It always leads to, truth leads to practice. Yep. When you know something, there's generally, <laughs> you're generally given this information, we'll call it revelation, for a purpose. And if you, if you look at the um, election texts, notably, uh, Romans 9 and 10, Ephesians 1, which is in the context of a prayer, this is supposed to fuel your worship, not your arrogance. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to make you go around with your chest stuck out. It fuels your worship. Keep in mind the mission of God is the glory of God. And the more humbled you are by your own salvation, the more it drives you into a state of worship. Too much of Christian worship these days is simply the rehearsing of doctrinal creeds, which has its mm-hmm. place. But when was the last time you actually were broken before God and you thanked him from the depths of your heart for his unmerited, undeserved favor and mercy upon your life? 
This doctrine accentuates that. It removes any subtle attempt or desire to take a smidgen of credit for ourselves, and it puts it all on God. If I deliver to you a gift and I say, you know, this is a this this gift is worth three hundred dollars. I only want three dollars for it. That's an incredible deal, but it's not a gift anymore. It's not free. A true gift is this is yours. It's absolutely free. The gift of salvation is free. It cost Christ everything, mm-hmm. except of course for His glory in His humanity. It cost His life, but He paid the full price for our sin and it's free. It's not, there's not a little price tag, a mm-hmm. tiny little itsy bitsy price tag attached. And if you hold to a doctrine of conditional election in the back of your mind, you can always take a little bit of the credit for it. I believed, I chose, I sought mm-hmm. out, I listened extra hard. I was a good boy. I was a good girl. I I responded. You think you're guarding. You think by holding to this doctrine that you're guarding people from seeing God as some sort of a tyrant or maniac or or mean spirit of God, you're not. You're actually diminishing his love. You're actually diminishing his grace and you're accentuating your own efforts. That's what you're doing. In an effort to guard God against looking mean, you're making yourself arrogant. You're you're trying to take some credit for it. Mm -hmm. You are saying, I am a pot, but I have the right to dictate to the potter how I'm made. And the the great potter says, no, you don't. You're a lump of clay. So it fuels our worship. Any discussion about the sovereignty of God always fuels our worship. To believe this allows you to worship better. It's it's very humbling. Secondly, we must be gracious. We must be gracious in our articulation of the gospel and our preaching of the gospel, because now we know how much grace we have received. Mm -hmm. We must be gracious. There's nothing more repulsive than an ungracious Christian that holds to the doctrines of grace. There's nothing more disgusting than that that I can think of. But that will happen. That will happen if you reduce these doctrines to mere intellectual discussions. Mm -hmm. And too often they are that. I I know some men that hold to these doctrines, frankly, that are jerks. They're not gracious men. They're not kind. They're not uh, winsome. And we we must be blunt at times, bold and courageous, but always measured. And this is not just about winning a theological argument. If you end this podcast and you're like, you know, I've, I've listened to this guy, I don't agree with him, God bless you. I'm not gonna lose any sleep over it. I'm not gonna chase you down. I'm not gonna try to twist your arm. Mm-hmm. I would just kindly suggest you're robbing yourself of one of the greatest gifts that God offers us, and that is the absolute assurance that he sought you out, mm-hmm. which will fuel your worship. And then finally, we're still called to evangelize. You gotta be obedient to the whole of the Bible. This is telling us, this doctrine tells us about how God's w- works behind the scenes, but if you're gonna receive and accept these doctrines, you don't then reject other doctrines. And we are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And in God's redemptive plan and purposes, that's how he's orchestrated things. Mm-hmm. As he as He uh, enacts his electing plans and purposes upon our lives, as he, uh, you could say, fleshes this out in space and time, he uses human preachers and teachers and evangelists to share the gospel. So it's a both and thing in that regard. Uh, we hold to a high view of the sovereignty of God, but we also are actively and winsomely engaged in Christian ministry in order that God would use us to take pots and um, design them and use them for honorable purposes, all for his honor and his glory. Mm-hmm. So that, that's pretty much where, where the buck stops, and yeah. hopefully that's an encouragement for people. Yep. Well, thanks, Aaron. Appreciate you diving into that and not avoiding um, a topic that can often obviously be quite sensitive. Um, If you haven't listened to the previous episode, we'll try to make sure, well, just scroll one up on whatever podcast news feed you got and you'll probably find it there. But you can find this podcast and all the other episodes over on the pursuitofglory.org website, as well as over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and on their companion app, Pub TV. And uh, hopefully you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rockman.